for me to stand in this place this morning. Um, I have stood in a lot of places and preached and have been honored to do so, but I've never been any more honored than I am this morning to stand in this pulpit where my great friend and brother, Billy Hayes, stands and where great friend and brother Tim Tagome is one of the elders. Known Billy for a number of years now. Knew him when he was young. Uh, younger than he is now. I have uh, encountered a lot of good workers in my lifetime, but none any more faithful and dedicated and humble than Billy and I call her Brandywine because that's my nickname for her. They worked with us for about 18 months, uh, close to two years at Nesbitt, and then he was a counselor for me at Sardis Lake Christian Camp. They were for one of the years, or maybe two years. And then uh, I retired from camp because I was old and did, couldn't climb the hills and, and the top of the bunks and, and get up with the kids. And Billy called and asked me when I was in Homa if he could get me out of retirement. What would it take? And I said, from you, just an invite. And he said, you're invited. So went to Indian Creek several years as counselor a couple of years, but a cook most of the time. And I got to work side by side, bunk with in the same cabin with Tim and to work with him on an everyday basis for those years and great years of my life. I'm now officially retired from camp. And so it won't do you any good to call me and ask me to go to camp anymore. because I will not come out of retirement again, but I did enjoy that, and I'm honored to stand before you this morning, honored to be here with my beautiful bride of a little more than 49 years. We're, on, we're in our, living in our 50th year of marriage, and if Lord wills, all the way to August of next year, we, we will uh, accomplish 50 years of marriage, and she deserves like 10 crowns and a 1,000 stars for having to put up with me for all those years. We moved to Shady Valley about a month ago, up about 3,000 feet above sea level, top of the Smokies, um, to preach full-time at a little congregation that had, had not had a preacher for over a year, small congregation, uh, mostly older members, and they um, had had a, a preacher who had left more than a year ago. It was a rash of COVID-19 that had taken several members' lives over the last year, and they were afraid. And so they took a chance on getting a, a local preacher again and having me to uh, fill that uh, role. And also the great honor of teaching full time at the Tri-City School of Preaching and Christian Development in Elizabethan, Tennessee. So I'm going to say this one time and I'll leave it right there. If you are a young man or an older man and you desire to be a gospel preacher, I know a good school. I know the people there. I know what they teach, and I know what I will teach, and I know how we will conduct ourselves. And if you have young men in your life and somebody's looking for a good school, please get a hold of me because we'd love to have your students come our way. We'd love to have two, not mandatory for three years, but it is a three-year program, have them at our feet and our beck and call and to be able to train them, mentor them, teach them, give them the tools, and then send them on their way for them to go for they, so they can go to work and bring God glory by handling his word correctly. So I'm grateful that I have this opportunity. I really appreciate being able to see, stay with Billy and Brandy the last couple of days, spend time talking and laughing and, and uh, being encouraged by their presence. Maybe one of the best, 
most informative, well put together and taught Bible classes I've been in a long, maybe ever, but set at this man's feet a while ago. Michael, fantastic job. Thank you so much. Outstanding job of teaching the gospel, teaching about the, Christ, the death of Christ. Great information. And I, you gave me a lot of ideas to go back and to dig out a little deeper, so I appreciate that. To say that we are living in some difficult, uneasy times would be an understatement. We have been now for almost two years, but getting about over 18 months, having to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, no matter what your belief is about some of those things, it's, it's real. A lot of people have lost their lives. Some of our friends have died with it. Many people have suffered tremendous symptoms with it. It's caused an amount, enormous amount of anxiety and depression. It's caused people to search for things on which they can stand and to which they can cling in this difficult time. Add to that the world's situation, the attack on our freedoms, the attacks around the world, and the uneasiness that that society brings. And people are searching, even members of the church sometimes are depressed and they're, and they're searching for something that's real, that's foundational and that they can teach their children and on which they can live and on which they can die. And certainly the blood of Christ is that thing. There never was a time in the mind of God that his son's blood didn't figure in our redemption. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 this morning. Peter writes to Christians who are scattered abroad because of their faith. He writes to the dispersion. He writes to them telling them that they're, under, they're going to undergo fiery trials. And those trials are going to make them better. And if they come through those trials correctly, they'll be pure gold in God's eyes. And that that will bring them closer to and it will be getting closer to the end of their faith or their salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And if that salvation, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, was spoken of by the prophets. Even the angels desired to look into that, didn't know what God was doing. Then he encourages them to be holy as God is holy. And then he says in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world it was made manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I submit to you on September the 26th, 2021, our faith can be solid and sure in God Almighty. 
And Peter writes to people who were being chased around and killed for their faith to say, you have a sure thing to hold on to, and that is the blood of Christ, which was foreordained for you before the foundation of the world. So I'm going to submit to you, first of all, there never was a time, it wasn't in God's mind. And if you go back to the Old Testament with me, you're going to find, as you read through the Old Testament, there is a thread that ties all 39 books together. It ties all 27 books together in the New Testament. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And that cord or thread is scarlet in nature and it's the blood of Christ. You remember the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? The Bible records that when the serpent, the devil taking on the person of that serpent, comes to Eve and, and asks her about God's word. And she says, if we eat of the tree and touch it, we shall die. And he says, you shall not surely die. And she looked at it and saw it was pleasant for her eyes. It was one that make her wise and good for food. And she took that fruit and she ate it. And she gave it to Adam who was right beside her because it says her husband was with her instead of being a man and stepping up and saying, I'm taking control of our house and we're not falling. He ate it also. When Eve gets the blame, but Adam was the man. He, was, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Anyway, God in his mercy and love had told them, you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. And yet, God allowed two animals to be killed on that day. He took from those animals skins to make them clothes. And there's no doubt about the fact that he, that blood of those animals substituted that day for the blood of Adam and Eve who should have died. When you get over to Exodus chapter 12, you read about the Passover lamb. Michael alluded to that in, in Bible class. How if they were to take that lamb on the... 10th day of the month and put him up for four, for four days. On the 14th day, they were to kill it between the evenings. They were to, it was to be a, a lamb without spot, without blemish. That blood was to be taken and put on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. They were to roast it and eat it, not break the bones, eat it, ready to leave Egypt. And what wasn't eaten was to be consumed with fire. That was a, that lamb represented Jesus Christ who would go through the horror and the tragedy of Calvary for me and you. In Exodus 12, 26 and 27, Moses says, when your children ask you why you do this, here's what you tell them. It is the Lord's Passover. And you will keep this every year as a memorial to God saving you with the blood of the Lamb. When you get to Leviticus chapter 16 and you read about the great atonement day, and how that on that one day, the Bible says in verse 27 of that chapter, that on that day they were to afflict themselves. Only time in the Old Testament, the command to fast was on that one day. When they would come together at Passover, when they'd come together at the Feast of Weeks, we know that is the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, when they would come together at the booths and the tabernacles, those were times of festive times, rejoicing times, happy times, when they came to Atonement Day, that was Repentance Day every year for Israel. They weren't to be joyful. They weren't to laugh. They were to mourn. They were to think about the sins 
It caught, it's going to eventually cost Jesus to come into the world. So the high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place one time that day, one time a year. Only he could go in there. And he had to carry blood in for himself and for the people. But on that day, there were two goats. One was chosen to be killed. One was chosen to be allowed to be free. But he had the sins of all the people symbolically transferred to his head by the high priest. In fact, the Bible says in that chapter that the high priest was to confess all the sins of the people. Now, I just wonder if the high priest took time to confess every sin of all the people. The Bible says he was to confess the sins of the people. And then that goat was to be taken outside the walls and allowed to, to escape, never to come back. And that was symbolic that was symbolic of Christ who would come and die and, and suffer outside the walls, Hebrews 13, that he might take away our sins. <clears throat> he was also impersonated, or at least in, in prospect, shown to be the high priest who would enter once into the most holy place. He would only do it one time, Hebrews 9, and through the eternal spirit offer his blood one time for our sins. When you get to Joshua chapter 2 and you read about the children of Israel fixing to come into the, and to take Jericho, two spies are sent into the land. They go to search out the land. They come in, they come in contact with Rahab the harlot. Rahab hid them, but, but she told him, them, our hearts melt when we heard of God and what all God had done to the people of the land. She did not want to die. And so the spies said, here's what you do. When we come into the land to take the land, you stay in your house. You gather your family together. You stay in your house and you put out a thread or a cord or a small little rope. That cord or rope thread was to be scarlet color. There's not any doubt in the world that scarlet represented the blood by which she would ultimately be saved through the, through the fulfillment later of Jesus coming into the world. In Isaiah 53, in verse 5, the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. In Zechariah 13, in verse 1, the Bible says there would be a fountain opened in Jerusalem of blood, and it would flow for the cleansing of the nations. In John 11, 49 through 52, Caiaphas would prophesy that one would die for the entire nation, but not only just for that nation, but for all people. And he signified Christ's death. We read 1 Peter 1, Revelation 13 and verse 8, the Bible says that he was slain, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Again, in the book of Hebrews, I mean, Philippians, I mean, Ephesians, you're going to get in chapter 1 that it was foreordained before God ever created the world. What's all that say from Genesis 3, weaving itself all the way through? And that's not nearly the exhaustive list of everything you can notice. And all the way to Revelation, all the books are tied together. The 39 books were tied together saying he is coming. The 27 books are tied together with say he has come. And he's coming again. And they're all woven together and held together by a scarlet thread. That scarlet thread, the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And in our day, we can take stock that Jesus' blood has been shed and it's available. What does, though, that blood do for mankind? Number one, it takes care of man's sins. It washes away our sins. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. John writes to the seven churches of Asia. He writes things that are signified by what he's fixing to say of things that are shortly come to pass. Those have come to pass. All except the day of judgment. Everything else is taken care of. There's not a sign that Jesus is coming again. There's not a sign that end of time is near. The Bible even says that there will be no sign of that. Jesus himself said, people will be living, giving in marriage, eating and drinking and be merry. Everything will be going on as normal and boom, destruction will come. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, John says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You come down to verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him. There'll be no secret rapture. There'll be no secret time when he comes, and then one time, and seven years later, he comes back again. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. We read about, we studied that this morning. You think about those soldiers on that day who pierced his side to make sure he was completely dead. And notice, the Bible says, every eye will see him, including those who pierced his side. When he comes, it will not be secret. And when he comes, it will not be silent. When he comes, it will be public viewing for every person who's ever lived. And it will be loud and it will be heard by all. In the graves, out of the graves. And his blood is that which washes away my sins. It is that which cleanses me. First John 1 and verse 7. I'm cleansed from every unrighteousness I've done. If I walk in the light as he's in the light. His blood continually cleanses me. It forgives my sin or remits it. Remember on the day of Pentecost? Those people broke into Peter's sermon and said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The remission of sins. When we sin in our lives, from the time we're accountable, every sin creates a debt that I owe God. God is so holy and so perfect that when I sin, I incur a debt. Just like if I go down here to the store or to the bank and borrow money and make a note, I have to pay that money back unless somebody pays it back for me. And from the time I walk out of that bank, I owe that bank money. I incur a debt. And I must pay it back as I promised or they can take me to court, put me in jail, whatever the case may be. Um, recall the things that I bought with that money. I incur a debt. And every time I sin, I incur a debt from God. He, we sang the song. Brother led a good song. He paid a debt I couldn't pay. When I sin, God being a just God, 
who allowed a perfect son to die for a perfect man in the garden requires of me that my sin be covered. Since David B. can't pay for his sin all alone, I have to go through Christ who can pay my sin. He, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I can't pay that debt, but he can. He's already paid it. And eventually I'm going to tell you how to avail yourself to that blood. But it washes away my sins. It cleanses me from all sin. It, it remits my sin. It, it pays that debt. But then number two, not only does it take care of my sin, it restores my relationship with God. Have you ever been at odds with someone that was close to you? Maybe it was your parents when you were younger. And something came between you and your parents and there was a separation for a while and then there was a reconciliation. There was a restoring of that relationship. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 that my sins and my iniquities had separated me from God. That he would no longer hear my prayer. Somehow I have to be reconciled to that God. To the God. Because if I'm not reconciled to him, then I'm his enemy. And on the day of judgment, all enemies of God lose the battle. God's going to win. God will win that battle. Young people, your parents aren't telling you to do the right thing because they hate you or because they just want to have their way or not just because they can be your boss. They tell you to do the right thing so when you die, you'll be in the right relationship with God. Because if you're not in the right relationship with God, you will lose that battle. If David's not in the right relationship with God, I will lose that battle. God will win. Righteousness will avail. Unrighteousness will be punished. And ungodliness will be taken away. When I sin, I make myself that enemy of God. But Jesus' blood reconciles me. Look at Romans 5, verse 10. Paul says, in conclusion of what he said in those first nine verses, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What did he do in his death? In his death he shed his blood. So the blood reconciles me. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God our, our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of Christ. When he went to the cross, Ephesians 2, 16, first Colossians 1 and verse 20, he reconciled me made that reconciliation possible by going to the cross and satisfying the justice of God. In, in doing that, we'll add to the third point here, it justifies me in God's sight. If you just back up one verse to verse 9, the Bible says, How much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath 
through him. So there is wrath, but we can be saved from that. How? Through his blood. There was a time, and I'm not sure, I wouldn't argue with you about it. You may have your opinion. There was a time when the devil could come into the presence of God and accuse God's people of serving him for reward. Read Job 1 and read Job 2. The Bible says that when the sons of God came to present themselves before, the, before God, the, the devil came also. Satan came also. And God asked him, where have you been? Well, God didn't need to know where he'd been. God knew where he'd been. He just wanted Satan to say it. He said, I've been down on the earth walking to and fro. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, Job serves you only because you built a hedge around him. God said, take a hedge down. On that one day, Job lost all of his financial resources. He lost all of his, his children were all killed. Another day that Satan comes before him, the Bible says, by the way, in Job 1, in this God, Job never sinned nor charged God foolishly. But then he came back before him and he said, where you been? He said, I've been down on the earth. He said, how about my servant Job? Oh, he only serves you because you protect his body. Skin for skin. You let me have his body. You let me attack his body. He'll, he'll curse you. God said, have at it. You just can't kill him. Probably would have been much better on Job had he been killed. But he suffered through what he had to suffer through. Now, at that point, the devil could come before God and say, he only serves you because you take care of him. He only serves you because he's, he's safe, he's healthy. In Revelation 12, the Bible says that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Now, I don't know if he can still go before God. I don't know if he has ear to God now to, since Jesus has died and been resurrected and sitting at God's right hand. I wouldn't argue that. I just know this, at one time, he could accuse God of being unjust because he didn't kill people who sinned. Because that's what he did with Job. In Romans chapter 3, oftentimes we hear verse 23 used as a t proof text for all of us sin. Well, in the context, Paul said, in chapter 1, the Gentiles were in need of the gospel. In chapter 2, the Jews were in need of the gospel. Therefore, he concluded all under sin, Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. But look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace. Well, we already read where we were justified by blood. So the blood was supplied in the grace of God or through the grace of God. And he says in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God had passed over sins that were previously committed. In other words, God passed over them in the sense of he didn't call down final judgment. He didn't make man pay at that point for the sin like he will one day. Verse 26, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of one or the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 26. Stare at those words. That he might be just. God is a loving God. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. He is the very essence of love. 
But God is also the very essence of justice. We don't want justice. We want mercy. Because justice demands that every sin be accounted for. God's a just God. I used to work in a grocery store a long, long time ago with Kathy for her dad. And we, I cut meat and so we had a scale back there. And every so often, the people would come and they would test those scales out. And they would see and make sure those scales were balanced. And then there'd be a thing put on there, a ticket or, or some type of insignia that says that the people who have the standard came and they checked our scales and our scales were balanced. And so if we put uh, some bologna on there or some ham on there or some meat on there and it showed a pound or two and a half pounds or three and a half pounds, that that was a just weight. It was something that was matched the standard. God is a just God. That means every sin that man commits must be accounted for in justice. However, notice the rest of that verse. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ balances God's justice out. And because of his sacrifice and because of his blood, when I stand before God and I'm faithful, God can say, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Can you imagine that? A perfect, holy, almighty God looks down at frail man who's covered by the blood of Christ and says, in my mind, he's never even sinned because my son's blood covers it all. That's like going into the bank and Tim going in and saying, here, I'll pay that note for you. Let me just sign my name. And the banker says, you don't owe me nothing. Tim's word's good. Tim's signature's good around here. And he looks at me as if I'd never borrowed a penny. God looks at us just as if we'd never sinned, if we're covered by the blood. And then number four, the blood of Christ purchased his church, Acts 20, 28. Paul told the elders that through his blood, he purchased his church. Friends, brethren, and young people, and brethren and friends among young people, we don't preach that there's one paid for church because Alexander Campbell preached that. Or because some school of preaching says that. Or some well-known brother said that. The Bible teaches that Jesus purchased his church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, he said, Upon this rock, that is his confession, Peter's confession, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, that is, I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life, and I'm going to take it back again, or it's going to be given back to me. Death's not going to stop to stop the establishment of my church. And then he tells Peter, I'll give them to you the keys to the kingdom. Peter preached to the Jews. Peter preached to the Gentiles. And then he tells all the apostles in Acts 20, I'll give you all the keys, all of you the keys. And they preach the gospel. But notice, I will build my church. 
He didn't promise to build two. He promised to build one. Hell, he promised to build his. He paid for one. I go down to the grocery store and say, I'm going to buy, I'm going to pay for Billy one lunch. Billy goes down there and he's guy comes, he goes in and he says, here's the lunch David paid for. Billy goes back the next day and says, I want another lunch. He said, he didn't pay for one. He just paid for one. He didn't pay for two. He paid for one. Jesus paid for one, the one he died for. And he paid for it with his blood. So the blood reconciles me. The blood's been made available. How do I reach that blood? You can't go to Walmart and buy a bottle that has the blood of Christ in it. You can't look on Amazon and order it prime shipping, have it tomorrow, a bucket, a container, or a bottle with the blood of Christ in it. But every person who's of a cannibal age from Pentecost on will have to come in contact with that blood in order to be just in God's eyes. Because that's what justifies me. You remember, the, you remember in Acts, I mean, Matthew 22 and the parable of the, of the, the feast of the, uh, had the wedding garments and the king came in at the end of that and there was a man there without a garment on. He said, how'd you get in here without a garment? And the Bible says the man was speechless. When people stand on the day of judgment without that garment, but they get in baptism. And Jesus says, why don't you have the garment? People will be speechless. What are you going to say? What would you say? That God didn't do enough for us? That God could have done more for us? That the Son of God could have done more? And made it easier for me to get to heaven? What would you say? If judgment came right now. And you're not covered by that blood. Or you're covered by that blood. But you haven't been faithful to that calling. What would you say to God when you stand before the Son of God in judgment? John 5, 22, Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. What would, you, what would I say to God? Well, the price was too, pie, too high for me to pay to be a Christian. The price was too high to pay for me to be uh, faithful. Will that work? Would I have enough audacity to say that to the Jesus, the Christ? Now that he has a glorified body, I don't know if he can still see the, the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and the print in the side. I don't know. What would you say? You should have done more for me. You know, you didn't do anything but give up heaven. You created me. You gave up, you created me a place to live. Then you gave it all up and came to earth as, as a man just so you could die for me and you went to the cross and you encountered the most cruel death ever known to mankind ever nobody ever suffered like Christ who was innocent ridiculed, slapped, beaten spit in the face and then mocked and 
basically forsaken by all of them but John and his mother. What would you say? Wasn't there something else you could have done for me? We will be speechless on that day if we're not ready because there's nothing God could have done more for me than he already did. He did it all. He paid that debt. He paid it all. And what's he require of me? He requires of me to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Faith created by the word of God. He, believe, he requires of me to die to myself in repentance. To make a conscious decision to quit living like the world, be called out of the world, and live for God. Live a clean, moral, Christian life, the best life you can live. To confess that faith before others and to be buried in water. Now, why be buried in water? The short answer is God said water. That's God's pattern. However, the blood and water came out when they pierced his side. That blood and water is tied together again in John 3, 5. It's also tied in Ephesians 5, 26 when we're, when we're, we're cleansed by the washing of water by the word. So when we put under water, we enact the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. We're buried into Christ's death, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Like as he, raised out of the, uh, he was raised by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. God takes that blood in, in a, an operation, Colossians 2, 11 through 13, and cuts that sin away from my heart my mind, my life, and I'm presented as by the, by the power of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says in Romans 1, 4, he was raised by the spirit of holiness. We're raised by the power of the spirit to be a walk a new life. We're no longer dead in trespasses. We're alive in Christ. We're no longer a child of the devil. We're a child of God. We're no longer lost in the world. We're saved in Christ. We're translated from that power of the death or darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And then we live a clean moral life. We suffer persecution. Why? He suffered persecution. He has already paved the way and paid it. And he says, David, this is what I require of you. But on that day, when you see me, 1 John 3, 1 and 2, you will be like me, for you will see me as I am. And I will grant with you to sit in my throne with me like I'm sitting with my father and his Revelation 3 and verse 21 I'll grant you to be glorified with me Romans 8 16 and 17 if you so suffer for me you can be glorified with me as a joint heir of heaven there may be some lawyers in the bunch there may be some people who deal with that I'm not a lawyer nor am I even the son of a lawyer or kin to a lawyer but I do know what joint heir means an heir is somebody who's going to inherit a joint heir. They receive exactly the same thing according to law. That's the words Jesus, Paul used about Jesus and me and you. If you're faithful, he said, you will be a joint heir. Can I fully comprehend that and totally understand what that, the ramification? I can't. I can tell you this, though. I can wrap my little feeble country mind around the fact that I will be like him and I will be with him and I will inherit what he inherits. That's what the Bible says. But I have to be covered by that blood. And I have to be walking in the light. 
this morning, if you are outside of that, it's going to ask you a question. What in this world, literally, is worth your soul? Matthew 16, 26. If a man gains the entire world and loses his soul, what's he gained? The rhetorical question, you gain nothing. What does the world have to offer that matches the blood of Christ, that matches the salvation, that matches the inheritance? The world can't even, it pales in comparison. And then if you're here this morning and you've already rendered obedience in the gospel by being baptized, but you're not active in the church, you're not working, you're not serving, you're, you've become wrapped up in the cares of this life. And they, they couldn't, they might not be sinful things, they're just things that take our time away from serving God like we ought. What would you say on the dead judgment if he came right now? But the most important question is, what would he say? Would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he say, depart, I never knew you? Imagine somebody being in torments for a long, long time. And then that day comes and Jesus calls and everybody comes forth out of the grave. Everybody's resurrected and changed in an instant twinkling of an eye. And everybody stands in judgment. And here's this person who's been in torments now in darkness for a long time in pain. That person is allowed to come one more time into light. And that person sees Jesus. But that person now has to give an account of his life. And hear those dreadful words, horrible words, depart. I never knew you. And then as that person is taken away into eternal hellfire. Light fades into heated, beyond imagination darkness. And that person knows he or she will never see light again. Ever. 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 But imagine on the other hand, the person who Jesus says, well done, let's go home. And the church is presented to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Like Jesus was presented in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel saw by faith. And we'll never see darkness ever, ever, ever. I made nine trips to Russia in the 90s, right after communism. And on two occasions, we went in the summertime. For 18 days... Or for six, 14 days, we never saw the sunset. In June, polar days, 24 hours a day sunlight, all day long. I wasn't accustomed to that because I had to sleep sometime. It was hard to sleep in the daylight. Brethren, when this life's over and Jesus comes in judgment and we're faithful, we'll never, ever encounter darkness ever, ever, ever again. And everything will be perfect for, well, in eternity. But you know who has that choice? I do, and you do. Jesus made the choice. He went to the cross. God made the choice. He allowed his son to go. Now God says, it's up to you. You have the choice. And when if we get to judgment day and fail, it's nobody's fault but mine or yours. God's made all things ready. And there's coming that day what will happen? If you're subject to that call, he asks you to come while we stand and while we sing.